Great. Sensational. Terrific. What is it? I told you. Cyberology. Are you with me? Not exactly with you, but somewhere nearby. Oh. This is Cybercrimology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. My name is Michael, and this is our 80th episode. So we're four score deep into our journey towards understanding cybercrime and its research, so it's perhaps fitting that this episode we're joined by a pair of pracademics to discuss cybercrime, research, and education. This episode was recorded in Atlanta in late 2022, and so we're joined by Dr. Thomas Hyslip, Assistant Professor of Instruction at the University of Florida, and Gary, who is a criminal investigator for a department and an adjunct professor. Of course, we'll also be joined later in the episode by Scott Wright to answer some of my simple questions about cybersecurity training, so make sure you stay around with us for that. First, though, let's sit down for a chat with Tom Heislip and I'm Gary. As we're just talking about higher education and cybercrime investigation. Do you think we're doing a good job now in supplying information to students and future workers within the criminal justice profession? The dilemma I see is you have cyber, and Gary and I talk about this a lot, where we're cyber guys, we're, we're nerds, we're geeks, we love cyber, we're on the keyboard all the time, and then you have what we call cyber-ish, and we have a lot of people in the criminal justice area that are cyber-ish. Okay. So, but then they're more they're teaching and researching and talking about stuff that's more you know, juvenile deviants do stuff online. Right. Where, what I think is needed and what we talk about a lot from you know because we both I retired as a criminal investigator doing cybercrime and Gary still is is we're not giving those people the skills they need to do those jobs. That's what I see. Yeah. There's obviously there's a lot of attention on the research and, and why and you know the idea that maybe if we can figure out where cybercrime comes from or how people grow up in the cybercrime world that we'll be able to stop it. But the reality is we need people trained on on how to find the crime that's happening, how to have the skills and, and, and the ability to go back and find the people actually committing the crime versus just understanding why they're committing it. Yeah. I think the dilemma is so criminal justice departments, you don't have the computer scientists, the cybersecurity experts. We're starting to get some digital forensics people and people like Gary and I who have experience conducting cyber investigations where people with a traditional criminal justice PhD, for example, might not have that background or experience and they might not be able to teach those courses because they, they just don't know. They're not the tech geeks that you need to teach those courses. Where do you think we should be pulling those people from? Like is there is, – do you think it's easier to teach them the geekery or is it easier to take a geek and teach them the criminal justice? The second – by far. Yeah. You, you, you're either a geek or you're not. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a problem where people think they can just kind of take a few classes and suddenly they, they know, you know, how the hacker, you know, mind works. And the reality is um, you got to live that culture. Right? We've said that for a while. A right. Long time. You, you've got to be in, kind of embedded, kind of grown up with that culture, understand it, <clears throat> the terminology. You've got to keep up with it and be so interested in it that you're always, always wanting to learn about it. That, I think, will make you uh, better at, at, at doing that. So, yes. And, and so... Back to your question, ideally you take the computer people, we'll say, instead of using derogatory terms like nerds and geeks, even though it's an honor for me. Um, no, I, I see that as a, as a badge. Right, badge yeah. of honor, yeah. Um, and teach them to be law enforcement is much easier than taking someone who, say, a, a police officer or someone that has a criminal justice bachelor's degree with no cyber background and then trying to teach them to do cyber work is a, a lot more difficult. You can do it and you can get away with it potentially in like basic forensics, simple online investigations. But if you really are working, you know, what you call like hardcore cyber crime cases with 
nation states or hacktivists. You, you need to know that world and live that world in order to do it. So what part of that kind of work is the joy? What's the fun bit? Every every job has a fun bit and a crappy bit. What's the fun bit of of that kind of work on the investigative side? Yeah, I listen. I, you know, we get to hang out in hacker forums, hacker groups, interact with people uh, undercover capacity. Um, we get to speak with them and and play the game with them, so to speak. You know, and and we also learn from them often, right? We're still we're learning what their new tools are or whatever. So so that's a good part. Our job is always learning, and if you like that stuff you're going to enjoy learning it and want to be involved in it and be online more and more and you know we don't work the nine to five right which sometimes you're up late because they're either different time zone or that's this when hackers do their stuff so uh it's just a very different a different job so the joy is actually just getting to interact with with these people and then the game of trying to find them right you know finding when they make the mistake or where they screw up or link things and that's that's what i enjoy that's why i like doing it well it's a a game of cat and mouse too because they're always evolving and we have to evolve and learn their new techniques um and then the other part gary didn't hit on it i always found fun was you're working on cases that international in scope potential high profile it could start off with something real minor and it turns into all of a sudden you're investigating you know a a major Eastern European hacking gang, for lack of a better term. <laughs> and you thought you were talking to a 16-year-old kid living in Tennessee. Yeah, and it yeah. just snowballs from there. So that's always fun. You never know where it's going to go. And, and right. often our cases will we'll be able to um, start somewhere small, like I said, and, and you'll follow a lead. Next thing you know, this thing is a lot bigger than you realize. All the people you might have been investigating separately, it was always fun to realize they've all been talking in the background. You kind of put the whole picture together. So yeah, it's, it's a different day at work. So it's, it's sort of excitement of discovery. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yes. Absolutely. Yes. Yep. Yep. Uh, on the flip side, what's the crappy bit? Paperwork. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a job. It's still a job. You still have a boss. Um, things can take a long time, and then uh, one of the biggest <clears throat> obstacles we have for investigating is often we need cooperation. Let's just say from phone companies, they don't keep record. They don't have an obligation. There's there's a lot of obstacles and legal obstacles. Um, we one of the biggest obstacles we have that makes it hard for us is prosecutors have to understand this as well. And a lot of times they don't want to deal with these cases. They don't understand them, and you spend a lot of time just trying to explain why this is a problem to them. And you're, it's so clear to you, and they're just not seeing it. Yep. Just you know dealing with with the limitations of the law and uh, the skills of other people you have to rely on could, could make it just difficult and you just hit dead ends often. And so many of them have an international scope. It's a lot of time and effort and money for the Department of Justice to work international cases because you're relying on the foreign countries to give you evidence, to find evidence you're asking for. And it's also a lot of cyber crime. People see it as victimless. So, okay, so they, they hacked a company and stole some records, but nothing's happened yet. Shouldn't we be going after murderers or something? And, right. But that information they steal is eventually used major fraud cases, identity theft. and So there is a victim. It's just it's not, it's not immediately known or seen. So sometimes it's hard to get them to prosecute a case. It's an interesting situation. And I wanted to get your take on what's been happening in, a, in Australia recently. So the, the Australian government put together a task force. So there have been two major hacks in Australia recently, a lot of um, health data and a lot of telephone data is now out on criminal forums. And I think the the responsibility of this group is to make sure that anyone who touches that data regrets it. Ah. That sort of sidesteps that whole international collaboration aspect because they're doing it directly. Do do you think there's merits to that approach? I think there is merits in that you may get an immediate deterrent effect because these people talk and all of a sudden they're arrested, they're in jail, they're getting fined, whatever the case may be, and quickly. The big problem with cybercrime is a hack can happen and nobody gets prosecuted for five years. 
everyone's forgot about it. A lot of other crimes, they get arrested a lot more quickly and they might not get sentenced or anything, but it, it's in the news it happened. They caught the person with cybercrime. It's, it's very hard to have a deterrent effect with prosecution and that having that immediate Whatever it may be, whatever they're going to do, the, the, the group in, in Australia, if they can do it quickly and they touch the status or we're going after them, it, it may show a deterrent effect. I think that would be the biggest benefit. We've actually seen that sometimes we'll work in multiple cases and we'll coordinate the timing together, right? We worked uh, DDoS cases. That was a big part of what we did. And we would identify numerous ones and then we would do kind of a mass takedown of domains and websites and, and a, a number of arrests. So there is a good effect when that happens. And actually, we saw actually good good drop. result. We saw a big drop in DDoS for, for a long time after we did just a few of those kind of coordinated ones. So th- that will work, but it's hard to do because there's... It, it's not often enough that you can get that many cybercrime cases coordinated together. It just so happened we, we, you know, we had it to work that time. Right, it was good. You mentioned the ability to learn from, from what's going on out there in the world yeah. and sort of this sort of speed of things that change and evolve. So what are your thoughts between the pace at which IT and hacker techniques and crime operations evolve. And we'll leave criminal justice systems out of that for a second, but just scholarly publications and researchers trying to understand these things. It it, it seems to me at least that there's a, there's a massive mismatch in speed between the environment and academic discovery. I would say absolutely. So, so first of all, hackers have have a really um, evolved well to to coordinate and work together and they share together and they, their ability to be rapid. um, They don't care. They can throw a thousand things at you, right? They they only have to be right once, right? Where IT has to be right all the time. That's always a problem. So they're constantly changing, adapting, uh, coordinating with each other. And there's no formal process. There's no, you know, paperwork they have to do. They just do it. On the other side, IT, I would say, you know, they've got to make sure whatever defenses they have aren't affecting current operating systems. Uh, Anything operational that might change, they have policy. You know, they only have one person or two or five people. Everyone's got to be on the same page. So it's, it's a much different you, you, two different armies are battling. So yeah, yeah. One, one's a very, you know, kind of kind of guerrilla warfare-ish, and the other one's trying to be a more professional army, if you will. Absolutely. And then you, you mentioned the research side. So if you're a cybersecurity, cybercrime researcher, you hear about an attack, an exploit, a technique they're using, you then got to go learn it. You got to go through IRB approval if you're going to set up a, you know, a, a laboratory to do some research on that topic. And, and then you got to mimic it and, and, and get the data and then do the analysis and then get it published. It could be 18 months before it's out and yeah. the, the hacker community has moved on, you know, 10 times over since then. So Right. So the hackers are the fastest. Your IT, you know, the, the people they're attacking can move a little bit faster than researchers are going to move the slowest, right? Uh, and yeah. then the last one's going to be criminal justice. As you the criminal justice system, yeah, yeah they'll be yeah. way behind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The researchers are, they're doing the research, but they got to react, get all the approvals, get everything done. It could be 18 months or two years. But then the research they're providing to the community, is it viable? Is it practical for law enforcement, for cybersecurity professionals? And the problem is, in a theoretical level, it may be, but on a practical day-to-day working, it, there's, a, there's a big mismatch there. There's a disconnect. I would say one other, I mean, I think it's an issue is, you know, hackers often are very targeted on what they're doing. So then if you're going to go back and research, you're basically just researching 
usually one targeted thing that doesn't, I don't know if that helps a lot of other people. Like, right. you know what I'm saying? So it's, it's a case of, again, you spend all this time researching a attack method or whatever, but maybe that was specific to something that no longer exists now because, you know, Windows has been patched 10 times over and this doesn't exist. I don't quite see the value in, in that all the time. I don't know. True. That's interesting because scientists generally push for generalizable results like they want right. they want results that can apply to the greatest mm. number of scenarios but you're saying that the effort and time that it takes to generalize a result probably counterproductive because the entire context is probably gone and will never right. exist no correct yes yeah yeah because again if a big hack does happen solar winds is a good case of a yeah. big hack that happened people who have who have things at stake are going to make pretty quick adjustments and now that's really not a factor anymore and now by the time research gets it and, and publishes it and does their thing it's it's an interesting historical look and you could learn something from it but i just don't know how it applies to the practical today you know how how today's world would really be able to use that data so much do you see a difference between the kind of research that you do in Internally, and the kind of research that happens in in the academic setting. Oh yeah, you think digital forensics? You think FBI agent working a case, and you have to figure out, you know, how they got into a, a hack, for example. And so you're you're working with the IT department. It's the thing you're doing internal research. You're doing some quick malware analysis, trying to figure out what happened, and then you just take that and move on. And the companies secure their networks based on that, where the academic research, it's going to be more, okay, well, why did they do it? You already know the how. And so from a historical perspective, it might be interesting and, and practical in that. Why did this person do this? But is it going to be practical to the net defenders and the investigators? Yeah. At that point, it's, again, it's, it's, right. the, it's the time lag. Yeah. And I don't, I honestly, I don't do a lot of research for my work. So I just, my research is the current, what yeah. it, the current threats yeah. and, yeah. and my yeah. research is far from official, right? It's, it's my own investigative stuff. So yeah, so I like again. I see the same issue with mm -hmm. the, the time lag in in this world. Is just you can't do much with it. In one area, I think where the you know the social sciences could learn from, say, the hard sciences, especially with cybercrime, and then you got the computer science, cybersecurity people. The computer science science they they focus not so much generalized, right? They're looking at a specific uh, detection technique that they may be able to implement, and they do research on it, and they come out with it, and they say, okay, we think this is going to work, and then someone might take that and use it in a and, you know, a, a new next-gen firewall, but it's extremely practical. Where the social sciences, like you said, it's more, they're trying to generalize it to a population and say, this is why something happened. But if they could look at maybe more specific, smaller sample sizes and not try to generalize it, but just understand, you know, DDoSs. But, I mean, the motivation is usually money, right? And, and, and gaming, knocking people <laughs> offline. But is there a way to look at a small slice of that versus trying to generalize the, you know, big sample might big change but yeah <laughs> it might be more practical and 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 i've seen approaches that are starting to at least appear to me to be starting to take this into account but you think we might get benefit from taking cybercrime out of one bucket and mm -hmm. starting to try and define the smaller cups that we yeah. should be putting it into yeah i think Absolutely. so yep. yeah yeah mm -hmm. you keep mentioning your world um, what does your world look like? Like, uh, I'm obviously not in your world. Right. I live in my own little world, and I quite like my little world. Um, but how would you describe your perspective uh, and, and your world in order that I could, you know, at least attempt to see things from your perspective? So I'm, I'm, when I say I'm talking about my world, I'm talking about, like, obviously my investigative world, right? I don't – the academics I like. I like teaching, but my, my focus is, is the day-to-day -day investigations. So what, really what it comes down to is, like – I'll, I'll go, we'll see the current problem, we'll get reports of uh, a defense contractor that's been hacked or, or something like that. 
we jump right into it. Like there's no, there's no trying to set up any analysis or just what's going on. What's the problem? We, we, we move quick. Um, we try and get information. We, you know, some new hacking group. Now we got to go quickly research the hacking group. Who are they? Or who's this new, you know, APT advanced persistent threat? Like, uh, is this an, you know, for us, it's important. Is this a nation state issue or does this seem like a criminal activity that we, you know, more important to us? So we're, we're moving faster, I'd say would be a good way. And it, it's much less organized, right? We're, we're just, we're just kind of following leads wherever they might take us. And, and then just trying to, again, build cases from that point forward. So it's just, I think we just move faster when I talk about my world. That, that part of my day is just much, much faster moving when it's going on. Yeah, it, I think it's, it's changed a lot. You know, I started investigating cybercrime in 1999, <laughs> um, you know, and you had the dot-com world and the bust and it was a wild west back in the early 2000s. Like you mentioned, you were an network engineer, right? It was um, a lot different. We're now, it's become so organized. The criminal organizations have really gotten into hacking from, you know, from a monetary perspective. The ransomware is a big example. And so those are almost becoming more of a, uh, you think about a traditional mafia investigation, right. you know, or a biker gang investigation. Some of these cyber criminal organizations, that's what you're looking at. And so it's changing, but it's fast. It's a coordination, though. It's like Gary mentioned earlier, you're starting off with, you get a notification this person's hacked. Well, you got to respond. You go look at it and... As you start working it, you may link, like, wait a minute, this was the same as the one from last month. Okay, these seem like they're related, and it could lead to all of a sudden you're dealing with an organization that's targeting specific uh, sectors of the economy for whatever reason. And and then it becomes an organized crime case almost, which are big cases. <laughs> uh, no, and, and, no, exactly like you said. It's it's changed. I've been doing it for about 15 years now. Even I've seen the change in the past 15 yeah. years. It, it's gone from the smaller crimes, the, the more just trying to steal credit card data, to full-on organized uh, crime organizations where they're, where they're trying to, like, they have a plan. They want to steal defense data and it's you know it's probably a foreign country and they're they're organized they're you know it's they're hard to work they're, they hide themselves better the technology's made it easier for them to hide online so it's definitely changed a lot when you, you take the coin mandian terms right advanced persistent threat yeah. apt right it is i mean they'll keep going until they get in it's not just a one-off hacker who tried didn't get any moves onto another target if they want that specific data they're just going to keep coming and they'll work at it for years till they get in. Yeah. It's a tough world to be a cybersecurity professional, that's for sure. And, 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 and the data they're going after varies so much, right? So whether it's it's the it's the the credit cards or their they want personal information or they just want database records or they want, you know, to get into a industrial control system. It just there's such a wide variety of reasons they're doing it now. That's our again, we're back to our challenges. Sometimes you don't even know why they're doing it. I always think back to the um, the pipeline. What was the colonial colonial pipeline hack? They just shut it down, and it was a ransomware attack on the on the the billing system. So they they couldn't tell right. who was taking what oil. So they had to shut it down. Or yeah, yeah, we talk about that actually in yeah. my class that that one because there there was there was a classic criminal attack. They were just doing a ransomware attack against the company. Turns out they hit the billing system of a big oil company. The, the pipeline company can't bill their clients. So they got shut the whole pipeline down, and the country goes into a Brief panic, right? right. And then you went oil up, on these coasts, right. right? So you act like what would a cyber a terrorism type of attack started from a you know someone who wanted some money? Yeah, they were gonna, they were gonna blackmail them with ransom to turn turn to release their data. And, and, and from an investigative point of view, actually, it becomes an issue of like cyber crime versus like cyber warfare. That becomes like a counterintelligence issue uh, that's totally different. We, it's you know who investigates it and who works it and how we work it. And then it gets, you know, I think this came out of Russia, the colonial pipeline. So then it becomes a diplomatic issue away from the criminal side. So it's just, things have changed drastically in the last 15 years for oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Does that complicate things from, from an operations perspective from your side? Because if the last thing you work out is why they did it, but in terms of 
who should respond why they oh. did it is the first question that is asked. Yeah. That's a big problem. Big problem. So <laughs> Big turf wars. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So especially being a criminal investigator for the Department of Defense, we deal with a lot of national security stuff. So it comes down to a case of when we identify something, we differentiate between criminal and counterintelligence. Um, they're very different. Uh, we don't work counterintelligence. We work just criminal. Yeah. So, so we could see uh, ransomware on, on a few small companies, a, a couple of contractors, and think, okay, this could be you know, criminal. And we start working and we realize, okay, all the IPs are coming out of China and, uh, and, and it comes out of a known Chinese military organization. So now it's, you know, you can't do anything with that criminally. So you got to shift everything over and then, or vice versa, or counterintelligence could be working the case. Turns out it's just criminal. They have to shift it over. So, and there's a, not, I don't say turf wars, but there's a lot of, everyone wants their, they have their mission. They want to do yeah, it. Yeah. Everyone's, everyone's wants yeah. to do it. And, and so, you know, that's still being worked out at this time, even after years and years of doing this, you know, who, who's in charge is still, often a, a question. And a lot of those criminal organizations, they know this, and the nation states yeah. know this. And so we've seen, you know, in the last few years where foreign state wants to steal, you know, a military design, say, of a you know, plane, something generic. Well, they'll, they'll hack in, they'll steal it, and then they'll put ransomware on the system and encrypt yeah. everything and walk away. So yeah. now you're coming to what you think is a ransomware investigation. <laughs> it was actually they were stealing military plans or something else. could be anything. And then you don't find out till later. You know, so you're working this whole investigation where they're not even negotiating to get the keys back and, yep. get, and they're trying to get the money and you're like, what is going on? And so it's They a, take advantage of the confusion. They yeah. do. Mm-hmm. You said that things have sort of changed from and, and become more organized. I was just curious from an investigation and evidence gathering perspective, does that make it easier or harder? Because a bunch of random people opportunistically trying to, to break into stuff, this there's not much conversation happening there. It's right. it's it's a few guys talking together or or one one girl sitting in a room by herself. But with an organized group, they've got to coordinate within the organization they because they're just a larger structure and it's a lot harder to hide a larger structure. So is it easier or is it harder? So one thing that does help a larger is they're more consistent like on the tools that they use. So we can we can maybe understand their methods and motiv- motivations quicker because we've seen these tools. We know that this is the you know this group uses this tool all the time to do this. So we we can get a better idea sometimes of the more organized groups faster. But it doesn't make it easier to find them or ever prosecute them. You know, right? If you have fifty people you know charging a building at once trying to rob that, you can't you can't keep track of all that, right? There's no coordination. Trying to go after them all is very difficult, and you got to kind of pick and choose. Yeah. You might identify the organization like you may know like okay this is the xyz group based in it whatever you called them or they're calling themselves but you you may never be able to take down the entire organization or the leaders but with cybercrime as a service they're outsourcing a lot of this stuff you can go online right now and and sign up to be a installer for a ransomware gang they give you the software and you spread it wherever you can and if they get a, a ransom out of it they give you a portion of it you don't know anybody else except that one person you talk to on a forum. Easy to catch that person because if they didn't do a good job because they're not really professional and they, they you just stick it on somewhere and someone downloads it and install it and you can find and you can trace them back and catch them. But it's like whack-a-mole because of the way they're doing this now. It's like the drugs, right? It, it, that's what I mean. It goes back to the organized crime. You're getting the street deal or you're not getting the, the you know the cartel in Mexico. Yeah, they're, they're insulated on the top. So. And especially in, in cybercrime when they're often overseas, right? And, and, and often a foreign government is either – supporting them or turning a blind eye to them, um, it becomes impossible. But you can pick off, like you said, the the low-hanging fruit, but it doesn't matter. That comes – with cyber, the next guy in the next country can do it in two seconds. So – it, and they'll pivot. And, but every now and then we have a success, you know, that, yeah. and, and they'll, you'll take down a, a ransomware organization, put another yeah. one right there to take its place. Yeah. 
and that and the, the whack-a-mole is, is the problem mm -hmm. so and i don't know if we go back to research like if that is that what research is trying to identify to stop i, I don't see how that happens right. because it's just it's too lucrative right now yeah, and I, I don't remember the exact number but i saw a stat recently and it, the chances of getting caught of committing a cyber crime in the u.s if you're not in the u.s it's like it was like a tenth of a percent <laughs> so what's yeah. the deterrent if, if i'm a kid sitting in uh, say the ukraine you need some money. I'll spread this software. Yeah, if someone and they give you some money. It, it's it's sad, but it's the reality. The the whole cyber crime as a service is actually probably the latest and greatest of, oh, of yeah. our challenges because now anybody can be a cyber criminal. If you're a good developer, they'll pay you to help them write new malware, and you just write it, get paid regular money, give it to them, and walk away. We had a researcher on recently, um, Dr. Paquette Clouston, who's done research on uh, legitimate industries that support crime like uh, the provision of website services oh, yeah. or, or software or things right. like that. Is that something that you see? You see people? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so we have bulletproof hosting, if you're familiar with the term. Yeah. Um, those are the hosting companies that don't, don't care what's going on there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You have developers who just, yeah, you can, you, can, you can go to any of these websites now. You hire a developer for a couple bucks to do one particular project if they're good, and they don't care what they're doing. They're just getting paid for their thing. So there's a lot of outsourcing going on with, with, with cybercrime. And, and there's a good chance, too, like the developer. We have no idea who that developer is. We probably never will. Right. All we're going to see is these people installing it, tracking it back to, you know, the, the, the Bitcoin and the payments and stuff. But that developer got paid and left. And He'll be available for the next gang that needs them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We sort of identified the difference in speed between academia and, and, and what you do on the day-to-day. -day. Academia might be slow. But it is rigorous and it is consistent and it's an unstoppable juggernaut. Is there anything that you feel like science and academia could be working on or could provide that would help that doesn't suit the way that you work? There's, there's something that would take years to research that there's no way you could get into your day-to-day. Your -day. But if you knew the answer to that, it would help so much. Isn't that a direct answer? But I think the best thing that could happen is the government's giving real cybercrime data to the researchers. Often they're using stuff that's 10 years old, and so it's not practical anymore. But if, if, if they were, you know, if the FBI at the Internet Crime Complaint Center or DOD at the DICE, DICE yep. were able to set up some kind of relationship with researchers and provide real time data they could use in a quicker analysis right yeah. and, and, yeah. and because everybody up at those organizations they're just looking at okay we get, we've identified this you know this uh, email address this ip address used 10 times all right let's package these reports up and send them out to the field and they can do an investigation that's all they're worried about they're not looking at the bigger picture the, the dynamics where the researchers are and that would be awesome now, getting them to release that data is so, a whole other problem <laughs> right i was gonna say the same thing so with the with the um with you often you'll hear, you know, we'd love to give this. It's an active investigation. Well, it's you know, investigations stay active for very long. By the time the five years before the prosecution, yeah, even if we catch someone right away, by the time we actually get them prosecuted, and we can't share that data until it's all done, and even then, you know, and then you got to get permission from DMJ. so so getting getting real world data would be helpful if we can get to speak in, in a faster way. Absolutely. So without that, yeah, I don't, I don't see how else that helps. That 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 old data just get good for historical, as I said earlier. I don't see how it helps today's problems. Yeah, I, I mean that's the only thing I can really think of that would be extremely beneficial for both sides. It, ironically, when I left the government, I reached out to the 
Internet Crime Complaint Center, talked to the director, FBI agent, and they worked with us and they gave us some data for a couple months for us to play with and see if it would be beneficial. And, and we did some playing and, and said, well, we just don't have enough. <laughs> yeah. It was like two months. Like we need like a year's worth to look at it. And um, But that's something, you know, I tried to do and it started to work, but we, we got to follow up and, and try to do more. But that, it would, that would be awesome. So if we could give academics access to the fire hose so mm. that they could, rather than just putting out fires, they right. could they could stand back and say, yeah. well, there's probably arsonists right. over here. That's th- There's so many people who want to do this research yeah. that, you know, we don't, inter- internally, there's not enough people investigating to do all of this. Just at do one. the investigation. Just do the investigation. The yeah. <laughs> so there's so many people that if you fed all this data out, it would be probably helpful. Yeah. But we just, I don't see that happening because of just laws and you know, privacy concerns and just active investigations you're trying to yeah. trying to work. So I know some European countries have done it, though. Uh, I know you know Rucker. Yeah, yeah. And in the Netherlands, he works very closely with the, the federal police there and gets wild data, and he's doing some real groundbreaking stuff on that. And if we could mimic that in the States or in a larger scale across the world, it would be very beneficial. Yeah, I, was gonna say, I don't – yeah, the laws in the U.S. might just <laughs> – Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you both for sitting down with me and taking some time to chat. Please continue doing what you're doing. It's very necessary. (laughs) Job security. (laughs) Great. Glad you're tired. For sure. Excellent. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Michael. That was great. Enjoyed it. If you're involved in cyber, you're often expected to answer questions on everything from whether we should worry about potato attacks to what is the airspeed velocity of an unladen spy balloon. The best way to get ahead of those wild questions is to ask an expert, and we happen to have cornered an expert in cybersecurity training. Scott Wright has been a security professional for 20 years, specializing in security awareness and compliance, and is the founder of ClickArmor. But more importantly, he's a good sense of humor and is willing to answer my daft questions. So let's take advantage of that and ask him this. What are the biggest misunderstandings about security awareness? I would say that because the organization or the the solutions for security awareness are often driven within the IT organization uh, most of the time. You know, we talked about this before. It's potentially, you know, very technical people and they're often pretty knowledgeable. And it strikes me that there are a lot of challenges in understanding how others are thinking if they don't know the same things as you. So there's a book that I, I read a long time ago called Made to Stick uh, by Chip and Dan Heat. Uh, I don't know if you know that one, but it's it's all about messaging and and communication for marketing purposes. And this is really a marketing problem. You're trying to get you know a message across to people, and they argue we all have marketing problems every day. You know, just convincing our kids to you know, go to bed or whatever. But the book Made to Stick is about how to create good messaging. And so one of the things they they mention in the book is that somebody did some research and they took some nursery rhymes, you know, that have, you know, a a rhythm and and a a tune and words. And they asked people to recognize them only by the rhythm. So you'd clap out, Mary had a little lamb or something like that. And almost nobody got any of them right. Because it's just so hard to reconstruct the full nursery rhyme from just the rhythm. And it just illustrates, you know, when you know a lot about a, a technology or a concept like security, and you're talking to people who it's not their job to know that stuff, it can be very hard to understand what they're thinking or what they're feeling. And as a result, we, you know, I've seen this on forums all the time, you know, people, IT people mostly saying, oh, our users are so stupid. <laughs> and it's not that they're stupid. They just haven't been taught or exposed to the things that you've been exposed to. So 
We need a lot more patience when it comes to dealing with people who don't have the same background as us. Thank you, Scott, and a big thanks to Dr. Thomas Hyslip and Gary for inviting us to share a little window into their world. It seems like a very exciting place. We'll have another interview from Atlanta in the next episode, which is something to look forward to. But until then, this has been Cybercrimeology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. It's produced by me, but it's only really made possible by the kind guests who share their time and their research. You can find out more about the show at cybercrimeology.com, or you can talk to me at cybercrimeology on Twitter, or email me at cybercrimeology at gmail.com.